We don't normally do creeds in our church, but uh, are you familiar with the Apostles' Creed? I want us to say it together, okay? Here we go. Put it up there, please. Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic. Okay, stop right there. Um, Why y'all laughing? The Catholic, don't get thrown off by that for those of us that grew up in the Catholic Church and we go, I left the Catholic Church because of X, Y, and Z. Catholic literally just means universal. We say things without really meaning them. We say things without really thinking about them. Because here's the question I want to ask as we sort of rotely went on. Put up the next slide, please. Do you believe in the church? I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. Blah, 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 blah. No, I want to stop you for a moment. I want to ask you, do you believe in the church? Do you believe in what the church can be and should be, what the Bible says? How many of you are honest enough this morning to go, I struggle with that one? Raise your hands. Raise your hands, really, really. So the rest of you guys, really, so the rest of us, the sermon series, a big preach to the choir, Peter, amen moment, because we believe in the church. See, I'm convinced that it's a lot harder to believe in the church than it is to believe in God. Because God, to believe in God, to love God actually is the most Just me. It's the most actually natural thing to do. When you come to God and you see God, you see that God is beautiful. God is majestic. God is wonderful. God is, God is amazing. It's, God is perfect. It's not a miracle to love God, a being who is perfect, but when it comes to loving the church. See, I think the miracle is loving people, don't you? Don't you think miracle is actually loving people, loving the church? Because when you come to God, you realize God is perfect. But when you come to the church, you realize people are not. But I want to say to you, as we go on this sermon, we're discovering the church. The beauty of Christian community is not that we're all perfect. The beauty of the Christian community, for those of you that are not Christian, I'm so glad you're here. By the way, if you're a Christian and if there was a sermon series, you're waiting to invite your non-Christian friends, this is it. Because the beauty of the Christian community is that we're all hypocrites in transition. Can I get an amen? None of us are perfect. We're all trying to work this out. Matter of fact, I've said this before. If there's some of you sitting here, you're dissatisfied with our church, and you've been church shopping because you're looking for the perfect church, I am telling you, there is no perfect church. And if there's a perfect church, it would stop being perfect the moment you attended there. (laughs) This is not a knock on you. It's reality. Nobody is perfect in this room, and yet we expect churches to be perfect. What is that all about? The beauty of Christian community is that we're all perfect. The beauty of Christian community is that we actually get to love people through the love of God. Beauty of Christian community is that you you get loved when you don't deserve it. 
Beauty of Christian love is that you're loved when you don't deserve it, when you've fallen. Beauty of Christian love is that people actually love you even though they know you inside out. Beauty of Christian love is that they love you even though you don't love yourself. Beauty of Christian love. That's how I know, by the way, the difference between love and infatuation. Love is able to love people through imperfections. Infatuation? Infatuation can't love people through their imperfections. Infatuation says, you're not perfect, you're not who I thought I were done. Love is able to forgive. Infatuation? No thanks. Love is able to let go of grudges and reconcile. Infatuation? We're done. I'm convinced that many of us don't really practice Christian love. It's more infatuation than love. We're infatuated with each other. We have a long way to go before we genuinely love. Is that true, anybody? Yeah, yeah. So we get to say that over lunch today. I didn't realize, but I'm infatuated with you. (laughs) And they'll go, I'm infatuated with you too. Let's just speak truth to one another. We're starting this sermon series called Rediscovering Church today. You ask people in this country why they don't believe in God, and many of them say what? Because of the church i've heard this i've heard this said by a lot of people christian and not i've heard people literally go i want i want jesus i'm interested in jesus but when it comes to the church no thanks i have christians who say to me i have a relationship with god i want a relationship with god i want to be vital relationship with god but when it comes to the church i can do without kind of like jesus yes church no god yes christians no the problem is when you look in the bible and we are people of the bible that's impossible to say Because when you get God, guess what else you get? You get the church. When you get Jesus, guess what else you get? You get the people. Matter of fact, the Bible says this. The Bible says that you can't grow as a Christian apart from the church. You can't get to know God apart from the church. You can't live the Christian life apart from the church. 81% of Christians in this country were recently asked, can you have a relationship with God without the church? And 81% of the people said, yes. You know what God would say to that? God would say, then you have to make up another religion then because that's not what biblical Christianity is. I am telling you right now, Christian or not, you're sitting here this morning going, I want a relationship with God. I want to get to know God. I want a spiritual experience with God, but I want to do it without the church, without people. God says to you, that's not biblical Christianity. You've made something up. So let's just be honest. You could say, okay, then I'll make something up. But don't call that the Christian life. I know that's strong, but it's true. Okay, so two reasons why you can't say Jesus, yes, church, no. One, let's just be real here. How many of you this morning have either been turned off, by, turned off to Christianity or walked away from Christianity or combination of both? Not because you had a hard time believing in God. Not because you had some existential questions about God. But because of Christians. How many? Oh, you don't need to clap. (laughs) She's like, hey, I was going to say clap, but I was afraid it would be too thunderous. And it would be like, oh my gosh. You know? But the reality is, isn't that true? So here's the thing. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a Christian intelligently committed to Christ, you have to ask, is Christianity true? Is the Bible true? Is Jesus who really said he is? If you want to know it's true, then you have to come to grips with what the, what the Bible says. But here's the thing. Nothing, nothing in all my experience as a pastor, nothing creates more doubt in people like Christians. 
In this country, it's almost like to be a Christian, you have to believe despite Christians, not because. So you can't say, Jesus, yeah, church, no. You have to somehow deal with the church, Christians, if you want to get to know Jesus. You have to somehow come to grips with, they create doubt in me. Peter, you create doubt in me. Not necessarily God. But secondly, and this is our journey. Oh, man, I'm so excited this morning. Second reason why you can't say Jesus here at church no is, let me put it up on the slide here, okay? Jesus didn't, and I put it in quotes because I thought it would be too strong to go, Jesus didn't die for you. Because I know many of us who grew up in church go, what? He's here, he's preaching here. Jesus didn't just, self in the blow, die for you. He died for the church. Jesus, where? Show me. Okay, right here. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Say it together. Ready? Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Hello. Jesus says, when I did this, died and rose again, I had more than just you in mind. What I had in mind was the church, the people of God. God's redemptive plan for the world wasn't just to save you. I know that's a downer. God's redemptive plan for the world wasn't just to save you. God's redemptive plan for the world was to save himself. A, this is the operative word today, a people. Say people. People. Say people. A people. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to preach from Genesis to Revelation. Okay. I'm going to be very succinct, hopefully. Get you out of here in time. But Genesis to Revelation. Because I want you to see from Genesis to Revelation how God over and over again says, I don't just die for you. I've died for the people. Over and over again. Because if you don't understand this 30,000 perspective, you're not going to understand the rest of this sermon series. So here's what I decided to do. I decided to sort of tell a story this morning. There's seven chapters to this. <laughs> I always have to be careful when I do numbers because I'd be like, there's seven chapters to this story. Okay, there's seven chapters to this story. Okay, seven chapters. And I try to come up with quirky names for each chapter. But take notes because this is the biblical trajectory of what God in mind when he created this. Chapter one. I wish I had some background music, but here's it. Chapter one. Man, it's a jungle out there. Is that in the Bible? Where is that in the Bible? Go on this wild journey with me. Next slide, please. Shalom. Everybody say shalom. Shalom. You cannot understand the Old Testament or New Testament, the whole Bible, unless you understand this word shalom. What does shalom mean? Shalom means more than just hello or peace. Shalom means wholeness, security, strength, harmony for all. Here's what you got to understand in order to understand the Bible. When God created the world, he created the world in such a way that there are these intricate relationships in such a way that every facet of creation is intimately and intricately tied, interwoven, interconnected to one another. The imagery that the Hebrews had was that of a fabric. A fabric. Think of a thread. A thread. I wish I had a thread. Thread. A simple thread. A simple thread, not very strong. Imagine I'm holding a thread. Not very strong. Not much there. Doesn't provide much protection. Not very beautiful thread. Not very strong. But what happens when you take that one thread and you take thousands of other threads and you 
weave it, connect it. Thousands of threads. You don't just have a piece of thread, you get a fabric, beautiful, strong, warm. When God created the world, he took all of these thousands of threads and he interwove them. So to a Jew, to hear that you could have a relationship with God and you could care less about how you are related to other people would have been ludicrous. Because a Jew would have said, no, 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 you're connected to God and you're connected to people and you're connected to creation. There is this interwoven, interconnected facet all of creation. To a Jew to say, I could be related to other people but I care less about God would have been ludicrous because all facets of creation is interconnected, interwoven. Our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with creation. Now, watch this. When sin entered the world, the best way to describe what happened is this fabric began to unravel. Every facet. It's interesting because when we struggle, we use words like, my life is falling uh, apart, disintegration. So here's what the world looks like now. God created thousands of threads interwoven. The world now looks like thousands of threads that are just thrown on the floor, just bundled on top of each other. It's a bundle mess. God creates a garden. Sin enters. The garden becomes a jungle. Nothing is working the way it's supposed to. Disintegration, unraveling of all creation. What does God do? Chapter 2. A promise made. On a dark, stormy night. You know, I envisioned my kids sitting in front of me going, I should have practiced, rehearsed with them. Parker, Sophie, on a dark stormy night. God appears to a man named, help me, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God says this to Abraham, right? I will make you into a great what? Nation. Ah, Operative word, I will make. God's redemptive plan for the world is not, hey, Abraham, I want to save you so that you can have a relationship with me and go to heaven. What does God say? God, Abraham, I will make a what? A nation. And he says, thank you, Sam. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God appears, and God says to Abraham, 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 out of my sovereign electing love, I am choosing you. And through you and your descendants, I am going to create a nation, a people... And I'm going to come and live amongst this people. And you as a people, check this out. You as a people, a nation, will be a nation unto other nations. How? I'm going to create a people in such a way that the way that you live together will display to the world what I intended human community to be. I want you as a nation to show all the other nations how this unraveling happened when the relationship with me broke, but how when your relationship with me gets restored, all the other relationship gets restored. Israel, that's going to be, I'm going to create a nation, and here's what I want you to do. As a community of people, I want you to show other nations how people of different race, ethnicity, and culture live together. I want all the other nations to be able to look at your nation and go, oh, so that's how married couples are supposed to treat each other. I want all the other nations to come and look at you and go, that's how parents relate to their children as children relate to their parents. I want all the nations of the world to look at you and the way you do life together as a community to go, so that's how you care for the least of these, the poor, the marginalized. 
I'm going to come among you, and I'm going to make you a nation, a people, Abraham. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to take an oath right now. I'm going to do this no matter what the cost. Chapter 3. You will be my people. The nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God's people cry out to their God, and they're longing for the fulfillment, longing for the fulfillment that God made a promise to their forefathers earlier, promised to be a blessing to all their nations. And God, listen, hears their cry. God always hears the cry of his people. God always hears the cry of his people. And God raises up a deliverer by the name of? By the name of? Moses. And here's what we find in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they reside as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites from the Egyptians, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of Egyptians. Listen very carefully to what God says. God says, here's my redemptive plan. You will be my people and I will be your God. Significance. Look, what, look at this slide. Salvation brings you intimacy with God, but it also brings you into community with others. Salvation brings you to this God, but, it, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. God's purpose has always been about redeeming a people, a people. The problem is that the modern church in America has reduced it to the conversion of individuals. And there's a radical difference between leading one person to faith and leading a people to faith. Leading one person to faith produces a disciple follower of Jesus. But when you lead a people to faith, all of a sudden you have a movement. Hello. A movement. A people. One person to faith requires one heart bound to God. Leading a people to faith requires many hearts bound together to God. You tracking so far? Chapter 4. Chapter 4. A kingdom of priests. You thought it was going to go long, didn't you? A kingdom of priests. An holy nation. It's been three months since they've been free from the land of slavery. They're being led through the wilderness. The 12 tribes of Israel are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. God calls Moses up to the mountain to make a covenant with the people of Israel, and God gives the nation of Israel the law or the Ten Commandments. Here's what we find, Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you ought to speak to the Israelites. Can I preach the gospel for a second? Why does God give the law to the nation of Israel? 
What is the purpose of God giving Moses the law to the nation of Israel as it comes down from Mount Sinai? Popular understanding of the law of God for most of us in this room is that the law is for us to find God and to be saved. If you obey the law of God, you get forgiven, you get saved, you get to go to heaven, go to eternal life. But the problem is when you read the book of Exodus, that narrative that God gives the law so that you can be forgiven, so that you could have eternal life is impossible. Because, next slide please, God doesn't give the law and then save the nation of Israel from slavery. God saves them from the nation of slavery slavery, and then gives them the law. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? The difference is the law of God is never ever in the Old Testament or the New. The way to be forgiven or the way that you're saved. The way that we go about the Christian life is we read the book of Exodus oppositely. It says if God comes along and says, here's the law, obey it. And then I will free you from slavery. Obey it, then I'll give you eternal life. Obey it, then you can be my children. But the book of Exodus declares the gospel because it comes and says, out of my sheer mercy, love, and grace, I free you from the land of slavery. Now here's the law. Obey it. Do you see the difference? Say yes if you do. You need to get this. This is the reason why I preach the gospel over and over again. Because religion says what? I obey the law. Here's the law God gave. I obey it, then I'm accepted. Exodus reminds us, God says, you are accepted by my loving grace and mercy. Then you obey. Do you see the difference? So can I put that slide back again so you can get it? God doesn't give you the law and then saves you from slavery. God saves you from slavery and then gives you the law. Is that good news? Now, to drive this home, the very next chapter in Exodus 20, this is where God gives them the actual Ten Commandments. But look what you find, Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, have no other gods before me. The gospel. God comes along and says, you being saved from slavery has nothing to do with whether you obey the law, whether you follow my commandments. I, out of my grace and mercy and love, deliver you from slavery to sin and death. Then I give you the law to obey. Is that good news? That's great news. Some of us sitting here going... My Christian life, Peter, the way it looks is uh, if, if I'm good, if I obey, if I do all these things, then I know that I can earn God's love and God's acceptance. Can I put a couple quotes up here? How do you earn something that's already yours? How do you work for something that you already have? And yet that's how we approach the Christian life. I'm going to earn it. I'm going to accomplish it. I'm gonna... You have reversed God's redemptive plan. God says, out of my sheer mercy, love, and grace. So you don't love me so that I can love you more. You don't love me so that I can do faith. You don't love me so I can do all these things. God says, you love me because out of my infinite love, I have promised you that I will never, ever forsake you. And I've declared to you once and for all on the cross that there's nothing bad that you can do that will make me love you less. And there's nothing good that you can do that will make me love you more. Is the gospel good news? God says in Exodus... I save you from the land of slavery. Then I give you the law. And that's found throughout the Bible. So then why does God give the nation of Israel the law? 
Why? If they were already saved from slavery, does God give them the law? Is it for individuals? Do you find anywhere there where God says, I'm going to give you the law so you, Moses, could obey it? Or what is, why does God give, you the, give the nation of Israel the law? And you've got to understand this. God is literally saying to Moses, Moses, I am going to make you and your people into a community of people, a nation of other nations. I am in the process, Moses, of creating a new human community. So God, why are you giving the law? The law is given, not so you can be saved. The law is given to you so that in your life together, as you obey the law, law you will be a light unto other nations you will be a light unto them you will display and testify to other nations how when a people who are saved by god are rightly related to him and they become rightly related to each other the other nations will be able to look at you and go so that's how humanity was supposed to live so so that's how human beings were created to treat each other so that's what god intended for all of humanity when he created them in the way they ought to live. God says to Moses, I'm creating a new human community that will show the rest of the world that if you store your relationship with me, all the unraveling is woven together. If you look through the Bible, you guys, what God says is this. The reason why there's unraveling in human relationships, the reason why individuals are at war with individuals, the reason why families are at war with families, the reason why nations are at war with other nations is that when our relationship with God unraveled in disobedience, all other relationships unraveled. And God is saying, when your relationship with me is restored and is woven back, all the other relationships become woven back. And you become a light to the nations. How did the nation of Israel do? Not good? That's a very kind way of saying it. They stunk it up. Why? Instead of being a knight unto the other nations, they became ethnocentric, racist, all about themselves. Instead of caring for the least marginalized and the weakest among them, they committed acts of injustice. Instead of worshiping the one and true God, they committed sins of idolatry. What does God do? God says, I'm done. We're going to scrap it? No. Chapter 5. You will be my people. How do you pronounce that, by the way? Redux. One day, in Palestine, a man who is from the nation of Israel, arrives on the scene. He doesn't just represent himself. He is holding the promise of all of his people. This guy, by the way, also comes out of Egypt. You say, where? Matthew chapter 2. An angel appears to Joseph and says, he got up, took the child and his mother, that's Mary, during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. So this guy comes on the scene hundreds of years later. He's also out of Egypt. This guy also wanders through the wilderness. And this guy also, check this out, is tempted by the devil. Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This guy comes on the scene. And by the way, you know by now, his name is Jesus. And, and he is called by God. He is called by God to love and care for the least, the sick, the marginalized, and the poor. And he does. This guy is also called to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and love other neighbors as yourself. He does. So this guy named Jesus comes on the scene in Acts chapter, Luke chapter 6 and verse 2. And look what happens. And Jesus went out to where? Mountainside. Now listen, 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 listen. The Jews 
learned something when they were way little called the principle of the first mention. That is, whenever they heard something, the first thing they thought was, where did that first happen? Where did that happen? So the Jews are listening to this. And Jesus walks on a, what? A mountainside to pray. And the Jews are thinking, what? Wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't who? Didn't Moses? Didn't Moses? Didn't Moses a while back go on a mountaintop to spend night with them? Oh. Verse 2, verse 2, or 13. And listen, listen. And when the, when the morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose what? He chose how many? Twelve. Oh, random, random, totally random. Good round number. Eight, could have been seven. Could have been, what's twelve? What's twelve? What's twelve? First mention, first mention. Jews are going, wait, twelve, twelve. Wasn't there twelve tribes of Israel on Mount Sinai? Oh, oh, who? You guys thought it was totally random, didn't you? Jesus just 12 disciples. What is Jesus doing? Hold on a minute. <laughs> Next verse. Then he went down with them and stood on a level place where he, and we'll see that context, preaches the sermon on the mount. So here's Jesus going up on a mountaintop to pray along with God at night. He receives the word from God, comes down and chooses 12 disciples. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is not saying, I came down to die on the cross and rise so that I can save you from hell to heaven. Jesus is saying, I have come to the next stage of recreating the human community. A new nation that will be for all the other nations. A light. Salt. I don't know what this means. I don't know if this means you're sitting there going, I, I, like, I, I knew that like in first grade, so go out to the next one. You know why this is important? Let me show you. On a dark, stormy night, the journey begins with Abraham. On a dark, stormy night 2,000 years ago, the new Moses is on the cross. Why? The people of God have failed to live out the covenant promises that they had made with God and God made with them. They failed to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They failed to love their neighbor as yourself. And the punishment for the people of God in the Old Testament was being exiled from their land to other nations. The new Moses is bearing the curse of the people of God for failing to live out the promises of the covenant. And he's not just exiled to another land. He cries on the cross, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He is exiled from the presence of the Father. The curse of not fulfilling covenant promise is on him. And he himself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, becomes sin. He dies on the cross, listen, and he rises again. Why? And this is where we go terribly wrong. Because the answer to that, why does he do that, we immediately go to so that I can have a personal relationship with God and be saved. And yet the New Testament authors say over and over again stuff like this. Ephesians 5 or Ephesians 2, which we'll talk about next week. For he, that's Christ, himself is our peace who has made the two, 
He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. One, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. Verse 15. His purpose, underline that. His purpose was what? To create in himself one new man. And Greek is kainon anthropon. Literally means one new humanity, one new race of people. You realize what he's saying? First of all, what's the purpose of that? So I could have a relationship go to heaven. Nowhere in the Bible. What's the purpose? He says, Jesus did that to create literally one brand new human race. Why is that so cool? The church is not a club where we get together because we have one or two things in common. I like the sermon. That's a club. I like the worship. That's a club. I like them because we share similar interests in music. That's a club. I like them because we have similar clothing. That's a club. A culture, a race is where everybody shares everything in common. Paul says this thing right here is one in which we have distinct common ways of doing everything together so that the watching world looks at us and says, that is a Unheard of, brand new, never seen before, human race, culture of people. Can they say that about us? This is huge. Yes? This is huge! This is absolutely enormous. Matter of fact, let me show you another passage. Paul goes on in the New Testament, all the other New Testament writers, says what? First Peter 2 9. But you are a what? Chosen race. You, all of us are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a what? People. We read that and go, once you were a not a saint, but now you are a saint. Once you were not a saint. But once you were a saint. Which is what? Once you were not a people. It's plural. But now you are the people of God. You cannot... Read the New Testament. You cannot read the New Testament. You cannot read the Bible and come to a conclusion that you can get to know God apart from church. You cannot read the New Testament and come to a conclusion that you can have a vibrant Christian life apart from this. You cannot read the Bible and come to a conclusion that you can live your Christian life apart from community. Why? Fundamental to God's salvation history is God saying, I die and rise again, not just for you, but for the church, the people of God, so that we can get together and sing songs. What does the church become in light of what I talked about today? When the church is about, we get together to hear a sermon. What becomes of the church if we come together as a church to sing a few songs together? What becomes of the church if our perspective of the church is that we meet once a week for two hours to have community groups? What becomes of the church if we perceive the church as I am saved so that I can come and meet my needs here? What becomes of the church When the church, the people of God, a new human race, not a club. I'll talk about this more next week. I'm preaching on Ephesians 2 for the next week. We're not a club where we come together because we have one or two things in common. We literally are to be a new race of people, a new culture of people that other people can go, that is just, wow. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
is it that people who never ever get along outside there get along in there? How is it that people who don't even who don't even look people in the eye and say hi to certain people because of their socioeconomic or racial ethnic status, but in that in that community in that church? How is it that that church and the way they live together is unlike anything we've ever seen before? What is going on there? Did you know that the Romans in the first century literally called Christians a new race of people? They called them the third race, a new race of people. Why? They had never seen anything like it. You want to know what Jesus had to say about this? In his priestly prayer in John 17, 21, he says, Father, may all of them be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Say this next part with me. Ready? That the world may believe. That you say. Do you know what? Do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is literally saying that the worry that the gospel and the power of the gospel will be proclaimed and demonstrated to the watching, unbelieving world will be the loving unity of people who are getting along in Christ who never get along outside. Jesus says that the power of the gospel is demonstrated when you not only declare that you could have a vertical reconciled relationship with God, but there's also a horizontal reconciled relationship with each other. What would the cross look like without this horizontal being? I wish I could take this sucker out right now just to show you. Could this be why people in this country do not see the power of the gospel? Because we can preach all we want about how God loves you and God has accepted you. But unless we declare the power of the gospel that he has created a new human race, people will not see the fullness of the power of the gospel. Maybe that the watching world and what they need to see and what they need to hear is no more sermons about how God came to love you and die for you. Maybe what they need to see visibly and tangibly in the city of Chicago is a group of people who never ever get along and do life out there loving each other deeply in here. Because that is the church. You want to know how the story ends? Chapter 7. A glimpse of heaven. Hey, that rhymes. Chapter 7. A glimpse of heaven. I say that because my son Parker is on this huge kick where like, he wants to rhyme everything. <laughs> he wants to be a rapper. He wants to be a rapper. Yes, he does. <laughs> Chapter 7. A glimpse of heaven. I cannot believe I just did that. Okay, Revelation 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful dress for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne of saying, God's dwelling place is now among the, say it, people, and he will dwell with 
them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, mourning, or crying, or pain for the old order of things that passed away. Do you know what God is saying? That the way this ends is one in which this new human race is perfectly related to God, perfectly related to each other, declaring, demonstrating the gospel. And what God is saying is, you and I, our mission is to give a glimpse of heaven now to the watching world. <laughs> what if this is how we all understood what a church is? What if we understood the church? Do you know what? We, then if we understood the church this way, I'll tell you what would not happen. What would not happen is you saying, I go to a new community. Meaning, I attend once or twice a month. Oh, you know, I'm part of a small group Bible study. We would begin talking about what this is by saying, what? I'm a vital part of that new human community, new human society that God is building right there in Logan Square. And our mission is to stay to the watching world. Hey, y'all, this is what God intended when he created us. Look at that. Look at that. Oh, look at that. A community of people loving, forgiving, reconciling, serving, sacrificing for the glory of God. Think of a thread. Think of a thread. Think of a thread. One thread. Not a whole lot. You and I represent that one thread. One thread. Not a whole lot. Can't, not very strong. Not, but what if that one thread was interwoven, interconnected, interdependent with thousands of other threads. Because what God is saying is salvation is about you being woven back into a right relationship with me and then being woven back into a right relationship with each other. God has begun this process of healing all of creation and bringing about shalom to earth. And God began this process through the church. You need to know this. I'm done. Carlton, you come on up. You, you need to know this. We did not start this church so that people could come, hear a sermon, go home, and talk about how much it impacted them. That was good. That was a bonus. We did not start this church so that people would come and sing songs that they enjoyed, sing songs that they loved, and felt like there was an emotional, uplifting experience. We did not start this church even so that people could just get involved in small groups and develop cool social network and relationships. You need to know this. We started this church 10 years ago because we literally said, Chicago doesn't need another church that does all that because you know what? I'll be honest with you. You want to listen to a good sermon? I could point you to better churches. You want to go to good worship service? I could point you to better churches. You want to go to great small groups? I could point you to better churches. But we started this church because we said, what would happen if a group of people lived on earth what God intended for all of eternity? What would happen if on earth people became a new community, a new humanity, a new race of people that the watching world in Chicago and the world had never seen before and said, how is that even possible? And our simple answer was, Jesus. 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 Several weeks is going to be a process of fleshing out 
because you sit there going, Peter, what does it mean that we're a new community? What does it mean that we're a new humanity? What does it mean that we're this new race, new culture? We're going to flesh that out. We're going to flesh that out practically, tangibly. And we're going to ask ourselves whether we're living it. And if we're not, we're going to do it. Today, 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 I want to, I want to awaken you out of your slumber of realizing that you weren't saved for what you think you were saved for. Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross and rise again and now sits as the Lord of all universe just so you can enjoy an intimate relationship with God. That's phenomenal, wonderful. But he is at work redeeming for himself a people, a nation so that he could start a movement of revolutionaries that will win back this world for Jesus. And he is calling. He is charging men and women, you and me, who belong to him, to say, how do I fit into that? What part do I play? How am I supposed to be a part of this new human race community? What is my role? And together, woven as one, 